Hello and welcome back to Wandering the Etch, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. I'm your host Larissa and in this episode we're going back to the medieval period and focus on Ukraine's only so-called king. Um, As always, I may swear, and if you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or just rate it. You can also find us on a number of streaming sites now, including, but not limited to, um, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can check out any of the previous episodes and sources. Now, before we delve into some medieval Ukrainian history, Let's go through some museum options for you in the capital of Western Ukraine, Lviv. So Lviv was founded by King Danilo the man we will talk about in a bit, and was expanded by various empires and countries after him. Um, The Polish, the Lithuanian, Austro-Hungarian, Soviet, and finally independent Ukrainian. So there's a ton of history in this one city. And with this ton of history, there is a ton of museums. Um, I won't have time to get into all of them, obviously, just the ones that I really liked. So the Lviv City Arsenal is one of the oldest buildings in the city and while it looks big from the outside, it's actually pretty small on the inside. Um, The building was created in 1554 above another structure and was attached to the city walls. The city walls obviously don't exist anymore. But this structure featured the city's torture chamber along with the executioner's house. It was also the place where the armies defending Lviv got their weapons, forging swords and sabers and producing pistols and rifles in the workshop. The larger structure of the arsenal itself was blown up by the Swedes in the 1700s, but not before there were multiple fires since, you know, gunpowder and fire don't really mix well. Um, but it was restored and it now houses the Armory, Armory Museum. The actual museum is pretty small. It's only the top two levels. But the architecture is a prime example of medieval fortresses that dotted the Western Ukrainian landscape. It's located at 5 Pidvalna Street in Lviv. The next museum I want to talk about is the Andriy Sheptitsky National Museum. It is gorgeous, and it's right smack in the middle of the city at 20 Svoboda Avenue. The museum itself was founded in 1905 by the Metropolitan of the Greek Catholic Church, Andriy Sheptitsky, who was himself from a very noble family and thus had monies. It was actually founded as a private foundation for the collection of church artifacts. In 1913, he donated it all to the people of Ukraine and a museum sprang up around this private collection. FYI, um, I have a very weird historical obsession with Sheptitsky. He was awesome and I will probably dedicate an episode just to him in the future. 
Anyway, in the museum has over 80,000 exhibits, and that was by the 1930s. And after the Second World War, it received more artifacts and exhibits as the Soviets closed institutes, societies, academic groups, libraries, and museums, because once again, they were dicks. Um, under the Soviets, the museum had to change their name to the State Museum of Ukrainian Art, but by independence, it renamed itself and moved to its current location, which was the previous Lenin Museum. Today, the museum is full of Ukrainian art and artifacts from the Ukrainian national culture, and these include medieval religious art, icons, sculptures, manuscript, prints, carvings, and embroidered fabrics. It also holds work from the Renaissance and Baroque periods, along with modern artists' exhibitions. Its tour de force, though, is a number of original works by Ukraine's greatest artist, Taras Shevchenko. The building itself is also very nice. Me and my husband took some um, engagement pictures there, actually. It was built on the turn of the 20th century, and it's very grand. It's also huge inside, with multiple levels and multiple rooms. So the next museum is a little more sad and depressing. Um, this is the National Museum Memorial of Victims of the Oppression of, of, of the Occupation Regimes, or simply the prison on Lonsky Street, which, as you guessed it, is an old prison that is also the main office of the Center of Research for Liberation Movement. The building on 1 Stepan Bandera Street was built in 1889 in the Neo-Renaissance style and originally used by the Austro-Hungarian um, Gendarmerie. Uh, the prison portion was built after the First World War by the Second Polish Republic and was used by the Polish State Police as a detention center for anyone involved with the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and the Communist Party of Western Ukraine. Many people were imprisoned there by the Poles, but it wasn't until the Soviets that its true horror came to the forefront. During the two years the NKVD, or the secret um, Soviet police, were stationed there from 1939 to 1941, when Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union were formal allies and at peace with each other, the Soviets managed to shoot over a thousand prisoners. There's excavations still going on in the yard of the building to uncover more victims. The Germans then used the building as a Gestapo detention center, and from 1944 to 1991, the NKVD used it again along with the Internal Affairs Department, and it saw many tortures during that time and many more victims, because that's how the Soviets roll. After independence, it was transformed into a museum and research center to try to expose the crimes of the Soviet NKVD. Now, the museum itself is small, but terrifying. Uh, you can see where the prisoners were crammed into tiny cells and how the NKVD used their own tricks and trades to get people to talk under torture. So if you're squeamish, you might want to actually miss this one out. Now, there's several um, museums situated along the Renok Square in the center of Lviv. The two I want to mention, though, are the Lviv Historical Museum and the Pharmacy Museum. The Historical Museum is huge. It's located on various levels and along an entire city block. 
It was established in 1940 on the basis of the Polish People's Museum, which was there in 1903. It is housed in three Renaissance buildings, so huge, and holds about 300,000 items from the founding of the city to modern times. And there's even items from the Ukrainian diasporas. Uh, Me and my mom actually went there, and it was like literally a half-day excursion. It's located at 6 Rynok Square, and you can walk through the Trypilia, Scythian, Medieval, Cossack, Polish, Austro-Hungarian, and the Ukrainian history sections. I'm telling you, if you want something to do on a rainy day in Lviv, go there. Now, I know the pharmacy museum sounds dumb, but it's actually pretty damn fascinating. Uh, It is an actual pharmacy, and when you walk in there, you have to ask the pharmacist for a tour. The museum was opened in 1966, and it's the oldest existing pharmacy in Lviv, which was actually opened in 1735 by Wilhelm Natorp. I believe you can have English-speaking tours, but we took the Ukrainian one. Um, You start with, like, going into the pharmacist's office where they do their, like, experiments and stuff, And then you start going back in time and downward in space and end up in the basement of a medieval alchemy workshop. It was, I was honestly super skeptical about this museum, but me and my husband were bored one day and he suggested we go and I'm like, sure, why not? And man, am I happy I actually listened to him. Uh, You learn the weirdest historical facts and experience what life was like for an alchemist back in the day. It's located on the corner of um, Stavropilsky Street. And again, it's an actual pharmacy. So be wary when you walk in and there's actual people buying pharmaceutical stuff. But now, let's talk about some medieval history. Danilo Romanovich, or Danilo Halitsky, was born somewhere around 1201 in Halic, Ukraine, to Roman the Great and his wife, Anna. And while Anna played a very important role in her son's life, scholars can't really pinpoint where she's from. There's debate whether she's a Polish or Hungarian noble, or a daughter of a wealthy and powerful boyad, so the native nobility. Most agree, though, that she was the daughter of Byzantine Emperor Isaac II Angelos, um, because the Byzantine dynasty really liked naming their daughters Anna, and there was a history of marrying their daughters to the Rus uh, nobility. Anyway, the cave in Rus lands of the 13th century looked nothing like that under the great Rus rulers of a hundred years prior mainly due to Yaroslav the Wise's unwise move of splitting up his territory among his sons. And so the emperor was tra- was fractured into 11 complex federations of lands, each ruled under different princes. There was infighting among all of them, and it wasn't until Roman uh, united the lands of Volan and Halic in 1199 that a prince was strong enough to wield power over the others, but also have normalized contacts with Western and Central European powers. 
The Galatian Volinian Chronicle, which was probably compiled in the end of the 13th century by unknown chroniclers and describes the events of the 13th century, describes Roman as the, quote, autocrat of all the Rus, who conquered all the heathen nations and at the same time wisely kept the divine commandments. He used to pounce upon the infidel like a lion and full of wrath like a lynx. He emulated his grandfather, Prince Monomach, who had destroyed the heathen descendants of Ishmael, end quote. Anyway, Roman was a great leader who not only managed his power over the region well, but also formed an alliance with Poland and held the Hungarians back. Unfortunately, he died too soon for his empire-building experiment to work. In 1205, when Danilo was only about four years old and his younger brother Vasilko about a year old, their father, Roman, was marching toward Germany to help Philip of Swabia, who was Roman's brother-in-law. Anyway, he was ambushed in Poland, which was a surprise to him since Duke Leszek of Poland was actually his ally, and they both owed their position to each other. But the Pope in Rome wanted Roman to convert to Roman Catholicism and demanded that Poland back that claim. When Roman replied with a strong no, uh, he actually said, quote, Is the Pope's sword similar to mine? So long as I carry mine, I need no other. End quote. Basically, he was saying an alliance with the Pope doesn't really come with benefits. So no thank you. Anyway, Roman began a siege of Lublin. And when Lesha came to the rescue, Roman withdrew to Zavokio. Zav. Uh, Zavihost, sorry, where during an armistice signing, he went on a hunt and was ambushed by the Poles and died. And so the area was plunged back into inter-regional conflict, and young Danilo was forced to seek help abroad. And by Danilo, I mean his mother, Anna, because a four-year-old can't really communicate properly. So Danilo was related to uh, Andrew II of Hungary through blood. Andrew's mother came from the cave ruling class, and so Andrew met Anna and the two sons in what is now Sanok, Poland, and the Hungarian king accepted Danilo as his dear son, and Andrew proclaimed himself Rex Galici, or King of Galicia, or Halicina in Ukrainian. Anyway, Danilo spent his youth in the Hungarian court, while it was said Vasilko was actually at the Polish court in Krakow. But both kingdoms, along with the noble local nobles, were all fighting against each other for the right to rule Volyn Halicina, which is the western part of modern Ukraine. Now, it seems that although the brothers spent time apart from each other, they were very close in adulthood. I mean, I think it's probably because they probably vacationed and like wrote letters together, I'm, I'm assuming. Now, Danilo was raised as a knight. And in 1211, so he was about 10 years old, he was with the Hungarian army when they attacked Podemish. Uh, so it's now one of the border towns between Poland and um, Ukraine. The people of the city actually preferred Danilo to rule them, but obviously those in charge had other plans. It was through this type of genius that Danilo's reputation and image was constantly propagated to the masses, who saw the constant internal bickering of their nobles as chaotic. This image was helped by his mother's political life. 
even after she was forced into a nunnery in 1219 by the nobles. It was her ties with the Hungarian and Polish royalty that allowed her sons to not only survive childhood, but have full support of both kings. Danilo was a knight king. He grew up on the battlefield and was a natural leader and military technician. He also reestablished his rule over Volinia by marrying the daughter of Mstislav Mstislavich, who was ruling Volinia at the time, and around the same time he saw active fighting around Halic with his Volinian troops, so the troops of his father-in-law. If you don't know the geography of Ukraine, okay, Galicia or um, Halicina, which is western Ukraine, got its name from the town of Halic, which was the capital of the region back in medieval times. Volinia, or Volin, is the region between um, Halicina and basically Kiev, the capital, which is right smack in the center of Ukraine. There were different rulers in Volinia and in Halicina, again, mainly because of Yaroslav the Wise's inability to pick a successor. So every son got a piece of the empire. The descendants of this really weird situation became Danilo, uh, became, sorry, Roman, uh, Danilo's father, who ruled Halicina, and Mstislav, Danilo's father-in-law, who ruled Volinia. So Danilo was in a great position politically to rule both. But the Halic nobility didn't really like Danilo, because why give up your power for the rightful heir and make it easy for him to rule? I mean, really? Anyway, in about 1220, so when Danilo was about 20, he was in the thick of the battle as he took his Volinian troops into Halicina. He was also in the rear guard that was eventually cut off by the Halic army. He somehow got out of it and continued to lead his principality. Now, it was around the same time that the Mongols, like from Mongolia, that Genghis Khan guy, began to strategically send their reconnaissance westward and into what is now Ukraine. A union of sorts of Rus princes met this Mongol horde in 1223 at the Kalka River, which is probably the Kalchik River in eastern Ukraine, also the site of today's front line against the Russian um, aggression, so some things never really change. Anyway, even though the Mongols won the battle, it was Danilo's Volinian troops that were at the front and the first line of attack. When they were forced into a retreat, it was then that Danilo, while scooping up water with his helmet, noticed he was wounded. He managed to escape along with his father-in-law, and it wasn't until about 1230 that Danilo's reign over Volinia was strengthened, mainly due to the death of his father-in-law. I also have to point out that the royals all fucking intermarried each other. Like, do you know how hard it is to figure out who married who and who's related to who, especially when they all have the same name sometimes? It's like that Mimi from, of Charlie from Always Sunny in Philadelphia figuring that shit out. Anyway, after Volinia was secured, Danilo turned to Halicina, the other prize that his father left him. The first foray into the neighboring principality was in 1230, when he marched towards the lowlands of the Nistral River, and there were actual battles along to like an iced over river. Danilo's troops managed to cross a bridge and it was here that apparently his fate was sealed and everyone knew he would eventually take back Halic. His reign wasn't solidified until about 1238, 
but his popularity and military prowess was growing. For example, during a battle, battle around Chernihiv, so northern Ukraine, with his allies in the Kiev Principality, his horse was killed right under him, but he somehow managed to get up and organized a retreat. Danilo's consolidation of power also coincided with the death of Andrew II of Hungary in 1235. Danilo was so close to the king, he held a special position in the funeral procession, the holder of the king's horse's bridle. I don't know, it's important, that's what the historians, historians tell me. Anyway, Andrew's son Bella took over, but he kept himself sort of neutral, so he didn't specifically back Danilo, but he didn't oppose him actively either. So as Danilo took control of more Halichian towns, like Padamish in 1237, Bella kept quiet, even though the Padamish boyards, or nobility, were pro-Hungarian and thought Bella would come to their aid. But Bella and Danilo both played the game of politics. Danilo was able to approach the walls of Halic, the capital of Halichina, mainly because he himself took a neutral position to Bella's conflict with Austria. Danilo finally managed to win back Helicina entirely. So, Danilo was obviously a good warrior, but he also needed to be a ruler and a diplomat. Why? Well, he was in charge of an important trade route, Kiev, Halic, Premish, Krakiv, Krakow, Prague, Regensburg, and Triad. So from the eastern boundary of Europe to the western. He also knew that in order to have a stable state entity, you have to have prosperity. And so he invited German artisans to settle his newly established cities. Armenian merchants to use his trade routes, which helped him establish further contacts in the Orient. Jews, Tartars, Hungarians, and other groups were welcomed into his kingdom. He went even further and allowed the Germans and Armenians to self-administer and self-judicate themselves, which allowed them to maintain their own customs and religions. In this way, they were loyal to Danilo rather than the local nobility. Lviv, a city Danilo formed and fortified in 1256, became, and continued to be after Danilo's kingdom fell into dust, a multicultural enclave. Danilo's rule created the needed stability and peace to reestablish Halic-Volinian um, rule, uh, its role as a commercial powerhouse where East met West. It sort of still is. Danilo also knew that in order to maintain that peace, he had to have fortified cities where his citizens can flee in times of danger. These cities included Voldemir, Lutsk, and Kamenets-Podilsk, to name a few. These were on the front lines against Mongol attacks. Lviv as a small settlement existed before Danilo fortified it and built a high castle on the hill that overlooked the town. He also named this new town after his son Lev, which means lion, and thus Lviv is Lev's city and filled with random lion statues. He also created the town of Holm, which is now in Poland. The Chronicle wrote about this experience, quote, 
When Prince Danilo saw that God favored that place, he began to summon settlers, Germans and Rus, members of other tribes, and Lachs, Poles. They came day in and day out. Both youth and youths and masters of all kinds fled here from the Tartars, saddlers, bowmen, and fletchers, and smiths of iron, coppery, and silver. The activity began, and they filled the fields and villages around the town with dwellings, end quote. The castle Danilo built onto that hill withstood the assault of the Mongols when other towns and cities were destroyed by powerful metal artillery and siege equipment. He eventually would actually move his capital to home itself. Danilo would also work exhaustively to reform his military, which included creating a heavy infantry based on the peasantry to withstand the Mongols' assault forces. The basis of the army was a permanent cavalry which was composed of professionals that got certain benefits in land for their services. Military service was difficult. The equipment was heavy and expensive. Some could cost an entire herd of cattle. But if you could prove yourself, you could also get a position with the administrative and political structure. This was the norm for actually most Western armies at that time also. For this reason, Danilo's Trujina, or retinue, was small and depended on the size of the principality it came from. Danilo was also forced to distribute his own lands to his Drujina members. What Danilo did do was increase the so-called Zemstvo militia, which was composed of the rural population who acted as the infantry. They were due for some reform since their role began to decline since weapons were expensive and skill was negligible. And so Danilo focused on training and improvement of their armor. He began organizing his line infantry, which was to be set against the Mongol uh, cavalry and archers. So they had to train themselves not to be afraid of that sudden Mongol attack. I would hate it in there and I would be whimpering like a small child, but that's just me. He also introduced masks and leather koyars to protect the cavalry horses. The koyars protected the butt and the mask at the head. Lviv became the capital for arming his entire army. Another important addition to his army was the crossbow, which allowed Danilo's army to become a match for the Mongol archers. The oldest crossbow belt hood in Europe was actually found in the ruins of Izislav in 12, from 1240, for example. All of this new armor and weapons had to be paid for by Danilo, and so it helped that his domestic politics actually allowed for his treasury to be full. Danilo's diplomacy was also helped by his family. As I said earlier, he was close to his brother Vasilko and completely trusted him. He was in Halichina, or when he was in Halichina, he would actually leave Vasilko in charge in Volinia. Now, Vasilko himself was also a well-known warrior. There's a story um, that there was a prince who conspired to kill Danilo. Vasilko, completely unaware of this, but wanting just to, like, fuck around, attacked him with a naked sword and managed to snatch um, the shield from the other prince. The conspirators became frightened and fled, thinking that Vasilko knew about their plan. Now, Vasilko ruled responsibly, but didn't make any great decisions without first consulting his brother. The said can also be uh, the same can also be said about Lev, Danilo's son. 
he was actually Danilo's second son. The first one, um, Irakli, died young. And we don't know what year Lev was actually born in, but probably around 1225 or 1228. Lev, like his father, began as a warrior. And his father took him along during his diplomatic missions. Um, they were both in Hungary when they heard the news that Kiev had fallen to the Golden Horde in 1240, for example. Both rushed back home, but through a more difficult yet shorter route through the Veretsky Pass in the Carpathians and arrived in Halic in early 1241, where they were met with those refugees fleeing the Mongols. Danilo, realizing he didn't have enough support to go against the Mongols, returned to Hungary and left his son to defend his lands. Now, the Mongols were slowly making their way westward. And so when they destroyed Kiev, it was a major shock, not only to Rus, but also Europe. Kiev became the first major city sacked by the Golden Horde along the northern trade route. Here's how the Chronicle described this event. Quote, Batu Khan approached Kiev in great force. He came with a mighty host of soldiers and surrounded the city. It was encircled by the Tatars and a close siege began. Batu pitched camp outside the city while his men besieged it, and one could not hear anything as a result of the great din caused by his screeching carts, countless bleeding camels, and neighing herds of horses. And the land of Rus became filled with soldiers. Batu set up his catapults for firing against the city in a line parallel with the Zoloti Vorota, in cave where the sloping land covered the f- with foliage had extended up to them. The catapults hurled their missiles day and night without cessation and breached the city walls. Its inhabitants climbed up on the breached walls, and here one can see lance break against lance, shield scrape against shield, as the besiegers met the besieged in mortal combat. When a barrage of arrows eclipsed the light of the defeated Kievans, Dmitro, who was entrusted by Danilo to keep Kiev safe, was wounded. The Tatars climbed up on the ramparts and remained there that day and through the night. The inhabitants threw up new fortifications around the Church of the Blessed Virgin. The next day, the Tatars attacked them, and a great battle ensued. The people fled with their belongings to the top of the church to its vault, but the church walls collapsed with them because of their great weight. And thus, the city was taken by enemy troops. The wounded Mitro was led down, but they did not kill him because of his courage during the siege. So, cave was taken, and the Mongols began moving westward. Now, Danilo was forced with a tough choice. Bend the knee or resist. And here we see how he managed to play the game of thrones. He was summoned to the Mongol capital in Sarai in 1246 by Batu Khan himself. Batu was the grandson of Genghis Khan and the founder of the Golden Horde. So he was a big deal. Batu wanted Danilo to do what a lot of the other northern uh, Rus princes did, pledge his allegiance and receive the Khan's Yadlik, or the right to rule the principality. When Danilo met Batu, uh, the Khan asked him, Do you drink black milk, our drink, mares kumis? And Danilo replied, I have not drunk it so far, but if you so ordained, I shall drink it. So this was Danilo's submission to the Khan, but one that the Khan liked and so allowed him to keep drinking his wine. 
This was helped, again, by Danilo's reputation. Batu still remembered Danilo's feats from 1223 during the Battle of Kalkut River and so took a liking to the prince. But Danilo's pride was wounded, and so he followed his own path. Neither complete rejection of the Mongols nor full submission to them. Now, I should point out that it was easier for Danilo to straddle that fine line because the Mongols weren't that concerned with the Halic Volinian principality. This was because Halic Volinia was never incorporated into the Mongol administrative district, nor were there any horde representatives there, unlike the Kiev, Podilia, and Moscow principalities, which were more actively ruled by the Mongols. So when Danilo came back from his month-long stay with Batul, Yes, he was pissed because he had to submit, but he was also free to reign how he wanted. The pact with the Khan shielded him from the other princes of the land, and this allowed him to create that political stability needed for economic revival. But Danilo was also eager to be free of the Mongols too, and so he went back to his capital, and he began discussions with the papal envoy Giovanni del Carpin. Danilo was impressed and inspired, and so he sent his Orthodox cleric to Lyon, which was the papal seat at that time, to talk to Pope Innocent IV. No one really knows who that priest was who traveled to Lyon, but um, I, Pavlovsky, believes it was Petro, the Bishop of Hilichina, and he does a great job of exploring the various options out there. I've included his article on the sources blog if you want to check it out. Anyway, Halicvalinia became a sort of buffer zone between the Mongols and the rest of European of Western Europe. And Pope Innocent knew this, and so he tried to organize a crusade of Western European nations to help Danilo in fight off the horde. He didn't succeed mainly because the Austrians had their own shit to deal with and the Hungarians and Poles were really willing to help out due to their own problems. Now, Innocent wasn't so innocent. He wanted the Roman Catholic faith to spread eastward into lands that were predominantly Orthodox and under the influence of Byzantium. In 1246, the Roman Curia sent seven letters to Danilo asking him to recognize Innocent as Pope. And so when Danilo sent his bishop to Lyon, he agreed to some changes in the church's organization, but also demanded that the Pope recognize his reign over Halic Volinia. The letter writing went back and forth until 1253, when the Pope sent him a crown. Side note though, with the inclusion of Danilo into the royal papal fold, he now got to be involved with the very fucked up political struggles of European royalty. I can only imagine his face when he got all that mail demanding help for some stupid familial squabble. So Danilo was actually offered the crown earlier, but rebuked it in a very nice way. He was offered it in Krakow on the way to a battle in the Czech lands, but said he wanted to be crowned in his own land, and so, you know, we'll do it later. But by 1250, Danilo was also forced to decide something, since north of his land was the Lithuanian prince Mendogas. I hope that's how you say it. 
who himself converted to Catholicism in 1252, although it was also said he was a secret pagan all along. He was aiming for Danilo, and so Danilo had to accept the crown. And so Grand Prince Danilo became King Danilo, Rex Rustonorum, the King of the Rus, and thus a Korol, and not just a Knyaz, which is the distinction of a king that has God's approval, or Rex, as in the Latin for king, that are used by most European monarchs like Elizabeth Rex as a signature, and Knyaz, which doesn't. Thus, when translated, Korol is king, while Knyaz is simply grand prince, which in itself is very annoying since the position and its responsibilities literally don't change apart from the approval of a certain Christian god. So, Danilo also managed to conclude an alliance with the Hungarians, sealed with the marriage of his son to the king's daughter. His other son actually married the daughter of an Austrian duke. Maybe it was this that allowed Danilo to feel safe enough to begin preparations to attack the Mongols. It was at this time that he began fortifying towns and organizing his army. From 1253 to 1257, he was actively campaigning against them. It helped that Batu Khan died in 1255 and his successors ruled each for less than a year after him. But in 1259, the Horde had another powerful ruler, Burundi, who marched against Poland and demanded Danilo's help. Danilo refused, but sent his son and Lev and his brother Vasilko with his army. Burundi then forced Vasilko to pull down the fortifications of the Halichvillian towns and forced them to surrender. Danilo was then, rightfully, pissed off at the Pope and all those Roman Catholics by that point. He wanted an army and not a damned crown. And when he actually needed help from his allies, they weren't there. The Pope's call for an anti-Mongol crusade was ignored, as were Danilo's pleas to his in-laws. And so he once again had to become a vassal of the Mongols. Another unfortunate side effect of this diplomacy was pissing off Constantinople. When in 1251, Danilo's choice to take over the Metropolitan of all the Rus, Cyril, went to Byzantium, or Constantinople, he was beginning, he was given a blessing and confirmed, but he was also forced to move the seat of power from Kiev to Vladimir Suzdal. The former Kiev and Rus Empire and Halich Vlinya lost its religious power. Danilo died in 1264, probably pretty bitter with Western Europe. However, when he died, his territories were expanded, he managed to hold off threats from Poland and Hungary, miraculously managed to minimize the influence of the Mongols in Western Ukraine, and raised the region's economic and political standards. Also, it was during his reign that the what-ifs of history are so intriguing. Like, what if the Pope managed to send a crusade along with the crown? Would Ukraine's religious standing be completely different? Would Ukraine have the influence and power of Rome behind it? What would have happened if Danilo managed to hold off the Mongols? Would Kiev have been gained back? Would it then become powerful enough to hold off the rise of Moscow? So many questions and what ifs. Anyway, 
Danilo was also a great father, and his son Lev succeeded him. Lev moved the capital to Lviv because, you know, it was named after him, so why wouldn't you? Worked with the Mongols and the Bohemians, added the Polish city of Lublin to his territory, and when he died in 1301, Halic was at the height of its power. And thus, a little bit of Ukraine's medieval history, but with a Western European Game of Thrones twist. There's a 2018 Ukrainian film about Danilo entitled Krol Danilo, which literally means King Danilo. It's okay, and I say that really sadly because it's directed by a really great director, um, Taras Himich, but this was not his finest work. Anyway, I'll put a link for the film on the sources blog. And with that, we've come to the end of this episode all about Western Ukraine's medieval Game of Thrones. Please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at WanderEdgeUkraine. Check out our website, WanderingTheEdge.net, for source information and other interesting extras. And please, if you can, donate via the PayPal, which is located on the How to Help section on the website. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcast or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends. Mm-hmm.